So I'll just say a few words by way of introduction, and then we'll go to, uh, to our first paper by George Nash. <coughs> Your programs have a, a different title for George's paper. It's going to be called uh, How Should Conservatives Respond to the Populist Challenge, so more or less the subtitle of our uh, conference. Um, I, d I don't suppose that there's uh, any term that has instilled more confusion over the last couple of years than the term populism. In many ways, it is a word in search of a definition. For many people, populism is like the term fascism, according to George Orwell. That is to say, a handy negative epithet, a weapon whose very lack of semantic content is one of its chief attractions. Anything or anyone you don't like can be effectively impugned if you can deploy the F word and get it to stick. But what does it mean? 99 times out of 100, it means little more than, I don't like this person or policy. Connoisseurs of Kant will have noticed that the term racism has a similar all-purpose, content-free aura of malignity. But exploring that malodorous development is a topic for another day. For now, it is worth noting <clears throat> that the first answer to the question, how should conservatives respond to the populist challenge, is that depends. It depends to a large extent on what we mean by populism, of course, but also what we mean by conservatives which latter term, I note in passing, is not necessarily synonymous with Republicans in this country or Tories in Great Britain. When it comes to understanding populism, history can be as confusing as it is illuminating, because many of the standard historical examples one encounters have but a tenuous connection with what is today denominated populist. Most surveys of the subject start with Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, the Roman tribunes, who in the late Republic agitated for land reform and grain allotments for the poor. They also introduced mob violence to the equation, to the metabolism of Roman political life, and were, a decade apart, murdered in the case of Tiberius and driven to suicide in the case of Gaius by their patrician opponents. What lessons do the Gracchi brothers or later Roman populists like Gaius Marius or Julius Caesar have to tell us about signal populist movements in our own day? Very little, I'd say, although uh, Douglas Carswell may take issue with that. Uh, and I'd like to extend that epistemic stinginess to more modern allotropes like Huey Long and Father Coughlin, two other figures who make at least cameo appearances whenever populism is the topic du jour. It is often said that populism is anti-elitist. But again, when it comes to phenomena like Brexit or the election of Donald Trump, I'm not sure that the effective opposition between elites on the one hand and us common folk on the other is really uh, all that pertinent. Often, I believe, the putative elites turn out not to be particularly elite or elevated, merely to be possessed through no virtue of their own of an abundance of state power. Over the course of the day, our panelists will come at the subject of populism, its critics, and the question of how conservatives ought to respond to populism from a number of different angles. 
I hope that we will also have occasion to discuss the related question of how conservatives ought to respond not to populism per se, but to the self-appointed critics of those phenomena that the chattering classes have denominated populists. My own feeling is that most contemporary examples of what we are, uh, what we are calling populist, populist movements are at bottom movements to force the question, who rules? Populism, in this understanding, is primarily about the question of sovereignty. I'm convinced that the issue of sovereignty, of what we might call the location of sovereignty, has played a very large role in the rise of the phenomenon we describe as populism in the United States as well as in Europe. For one thing, the question of sovereignty, of who governs, stands behind the rebellion against the po political correctness and moral meddlesomeness <coughs> that are such conspicuous and disfiguring features of our increasingly bureaucratic society. The smothering Tocquevillian blanket of regulatory excess <clears throat> has had a wide range of practical and economic effects, stifling entrepreneurship and making any sort of productive innovation very difficult. In The Road to Serfdom, Friedrich Hayek said that one of the main points of his argument concerned, quote, the psychological change, the alteration of the character of the people that extensive government control brought in its wake. The alteration involves a process of softening, enervation, infantilization even, in exchange of the challenges of liberty and self-reliance, the challenges, that is to say, of adulthood, for the coddling pleasures of dependence. Max Weber spoke in this context of Ordungsmenschen, a word I learned from uh, Philip Hamburger, uh, men who have become increasingly dependent on an order imposed upon them from above. Breaking with that drift becomes more and more difficult the more habituated to dependence a people becomes. In this sense, what has been described as a populist upsurge against political correctness is simply a reassertion of independence, a reclamation of <clears throat> what turns out to be a most uncommon virtue, common sense. The issue of sovereignty also stands behind the debate over immigration. Indeed, is there any issue more central to the question who governs than who gets to decide a nation's borders and how a country defines its first person plural, the we, that makes us who we are as a people. Throughout his campaign, Donald Trump promised to enforce America's immigration laws and to end so-called sanctuary cities, which advertise themselves as safe havens for illegal aliens, though of course uh, we're not allowed to call them illegal aliens, and to sharpen vetting procedures for people wishing to immigrate to America from countries known as sponsors of terrorism. The issues of sovereignty also stands <clears throat> behind the debates over the relative advantages and moral weather, as it were, of globalism versus nationalism, as well as the correlative economic issues <clears throat> of underemployment and wage stagnation. What James Madison castigated as theoretic politicians uh, uh, may advocate globalism as a necessary condition for free trade, but the spirit of local control tempers the cosmopolitan project of a borderless world with a recognition that the nation state has become the best guarantor not only of sovereignty, but also of broadly shared prosperity. What we might call the ideology of free trade, 
the globalist aspiration to transcend the impediments of national identity and control is an abstraction that principally benefits its architects. In his 1770 essay, Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents, Edmund Burke criticized the court of George III for circumventing parliament and establishing by stealth what amounted to a new regime of <coughs> royal prerogative and influence peddling. It was not as patent <clears throat> as a swaggering course of James I or Charles I. George and his courtiers maintained the appearance of parliamentary supremacy, but a closer look showed that the system was corrupt. It was soon discovered, Burke wrote with sly understatement, that the forms of a free and the ends of an arbitrary government were things not altogether incompatible. That discovery stands behind the growth of the administrative state. Under the cloak of democratic institutions, it's essentially undemocratic activities pursue an expansionist agenda that threatens liberty in the most comprehensive way by circumventing the law. At the same time, however, a growing recognition of the totalitarian goals of the administrative state has fed what many have called a populist uprising here and in Europe. Populist, I'd maintain, is one word for the phenomenon, but an affirmation of sovereignty underwritten by a passion for freedom is another and possibly more accurate phrase. If that is correct, then I'd say that conservatives ought to respond to the populist challenge by embracing it wholeheartedly. But there are many stops to the pipe that is populism, and I expect that these introductory reflections will be deepened and indeed complicated by the observations of our panelists. And now I'd like to turn to George Nash for our first table. Thank you, Roger, and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be in your company. And I thank you, Roger, and your colleagues for inviting me to participate in what I think will be a very stimulating conversation and an important one. For nearly two years, the United States has been living through the political equivalent of a volcanic eruption. The volume of volcanic ash that it has generated in the form of media coverage, blog posts, and tweets has been staggering. And in these tumultuous circumstances, it is hard to think afresh about our condition. Nevertheless, we must try. Silence in the face of challenge is even worse than redundancy. First, a brief definition of terms. By conservatives in the paper that follows, I shall refer primarily to American conservatives who grew up in, grew up in or are the products of the conservative intellectual and political movement that developed in the era of William F. Buckley Jr. and Ronald Reagan. In other words, those conservatives who until quite recently saw themselves as inhabiting the conservative mainstream. By populism, I shall refer simply to a recurrent phenomenon in American politics, concisely defined as the revolt of ordinary people against overbearing and self-serving elites. Populistic sentiments, characterized by celebration of the virtue of ordinary people and distrust of their so-called betters, are nothing new in American history. They form a kind of backdrop to our daily political life, a muttering undercurrent in the ongoing political conversation. Most of the time, these mutterings do not rise to the level of a roar. But populism 
is something more. It is an act of rebellion, and it too has deep roots in American politics. American populism has traditionally come in two forms, a left-wing variety, which aims its fire at private sector, capitalist elites figuratively ensconced in Wall Street, and more recently, a right-wing variety, which focuses most of its wrath on the public sector elite headquartered in Washington. In 2016, these two competing brands of populism vied for supremacy in their respective political homes, the Democratic and Republican parties, only to be eclipsed in the end by a new and even angrier brand of populism, a hybrid that we now call Trumpism. It is this hybrid and its challenge to mainstream conservatism that has brought us here today. How should conservatives evaluate and respond to it? I suggest that we examine it at four levels. First, the grievances of the aggrieved. Second, the program, however vague, of the aggrieved. Third, the character and qualifications of the leadership of the aggrieved. And fourth, the intrinsic strengths and weaknesses of populism itself as a form of political action. Conservatives have now had nearly two years to study the Trumpian revolt of the masses. What is noteworthy, at least to this historian, is the degree of consensus on the right about the insurgency's socioeconomic character and the validity of its grievances. Conservative observers seem generally to agree that Trumpian populism has exposed a profound chasm between those above and those below on the socioeconomic scale. The cat analytic categories and labels vary from commentator to commentator. We speak of populists and elitists, nationalists and globalists, and so forth. But the underlying analytic thrust is the same. To generalize quickly, in the past year or so, American conservative intellectuals have increasingly recognized and come to express sympathy for the economic and cultural grievances of the Trumpian aggrieved. At step one of our analytical ladder, the level of recognition and empathy, conservatives of the Buckley-Reagan persuasion have responded adequately, if sometimes belatedly, to the populist challenge. But that is only step one. It might seem that such empathy would quickly motivate conservative public policy experts and their allies to devise and implement measures to alleviate the pain that has been exposed. This leads to our second level of analysis, the program of the aggrieved, and to one of the most serious challenges now besetting the American right. To put it plainly, Trumpism, or if you prefer Bannonism, after its feisty apologist Stephen Bannon, is not merely a revolt against a left-wing establishment entrenched in the administrative state inside the Beltway. Nor is it just a rebellion against a flaccid Republican political establishment situated nearby. It is also an ideological revolt against what it perceives to be a decrepit conservative intellectual establishment formed during the Cold War era. 
The distinctiveness of Trumpism is that it is assailing three establishments simultaneously. Nowhere are these battle lines more sharply illuminated than in the current debate over domestic public policy now unfolding on Capitol Hill. Since the advent of the Reagan administration in 1981, the dominant conservative approach to domestic public policy has been the tax-cutting, pro-free trade, and pro-immigration ideology known as supply-side economics. Call it Kempism, after its foremost exponent for many years, the late Representative Jack Kemp, one of whose disciples, if you will, is Paul Ryan, who was a speechwriter for him once upon a time. In 2016, however, along came a new ideology, Trumpism or Bannonism, committed to what Bannon bluntly touts as economic nationalism. Its program includes possibly higher taxes on the rich, protectionist constraints on free trade, free trade and massive restrictions on immigration for economic, national security, and cultural reasons. As Bannon told the interviewer Charlie Rose earlier this month, economic nationalism is what this country was built on. It is difficult to conceive of a more explicit repudiation of Reagan-era supply-side economics or its tireless custodian, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. The fault line goes even deeper. At the heart of Ronald Reagan's political philosophy was a single value, freedom. The right, in Reagan's words, of each individual to control his own destiny and work out his own happiness without subjection to the whims of the state. We are a nation, he preached in his first inaugural address, that has a government, not the other way around and that has made us special among the nations of the earth. At the heart of Trumpian populism, however, and I suspect of all populism, is a very different yearning for security, particularly for those who feel forgotten or left behind. If Reaganite conservatism, at least in theory, has been deeply skeptical of the power of government to manage free markets and create prosperity, at the core of Trumpian populism, and maybe of all populism, is faith in governmental power, or at least a willingness born of desperation to use such power energetically to improve the lot of what is called the people. Donald Trump, I believe, embodies this impulse. Painting a somber picture of American misery and corruption in his acceptance speech in 2016, he proclaimed, nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. It is a breathtaking divergence from the political and economic philosophy of Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Ronald Reagan, and other heroes of mainstream American conservatism. Is the policy gap between Kempism and Trumpism unbridgeable? In the next few months, presumably, we will find out. Perhaps out of all the tumult in Washington, messy but tolerable compromises may emerge. 
But if this is to happen, feuding conservatives and nationalist populists may need to absorb the truth of a maxim popularized by H.L. Mencken, who said that in politics, a man must learn to rise above principle. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, conservatives are likely to have their hands full at the third level of analysis I have proposed for dealing with the populist challenge, namely the character and leadership of the man whom the populist upheaval has thrust upon us. Here I shall make no effort to examine in depth our new president's personality, tempting and addictively fascinating as such an effort might prove to be. Instead, let me offer a single remarkable datum that conservatives should ponder. In September 2017, more than eight months into his first year in office, Donald Trump has yet to receive the approval of a clear majority of the American people in the opinion polls. This is without precedent in the modern history of the presidency, and it is not a harbinger of sunny weather ahead. There are reasons for this state of affairs, of course, notably the unremitting barrage of loathing and hostility heaped upon Trump by his enemies on the left. But some of the explanation lies in Trump's own temperament and in a pugilistic governing style that affronts many who have some sympathy with his agenda. <coughs> Here, I am reminded of another <coughs> pugilistic populist of sorts, the crusading anti-communist Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s. In 1954, at the height of McCarthy's popularity, the former communist and now conservative icon Whitaker Chambers a man of sterling anti-communist credentials, wrote a letter to his friend William F. Buckley Jr., who was about to publish a book in defense of McCarthy and who wanted Chambers to provide a blurb for the book cover. Chambers declined. Instead, he warned Buckley bluntly about McCarthy's flaws. He wrote, none of us are his enemies. All of us would like to be his partisans if only because all are engaged in the same war. As it is, most of us make an effort to overlook certain matters or to give him the benefit of most doubts. But all of us, to one degree or another, have slowly come to question his judgment and to fear acutely that his flair for the sensational, his inaccuracies and distortions, his tendency to sacrifice the greater objective for the momentary effect will lead him and us into trouble. In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that we live in terror that Senator McCarthy will one day make some irreparable blunder which will play directly into the hands of our common enemy and discredit the whole anti-communist effort for a long while to come. Reread this passage and insert the words Trump and populist for Senator McCarthy and anti-communist, and you will understand the uneasiness and trepidation, right or wrong, that lurk in many conservative hearts today. Indeed, it is not too much to say that the unfolding populist challenge in 2017 is fraught with tragic possibilities tragic for conservatives 
and for those millions of aggrieved voters who placed their trust in this unlikely prince. One such scenario is that in the 2018 elections or sooner, Trump's presidency, insofar as it depends on Congress for results, will be reduced to political impotence, a blustery tale of sound and fury signifying gridlock. A second tragic possibility is that in his eagerness for deals across party lines, President Trump may be maneuvered into grievously disappointing his political base, particularly on immigration, thereby causing many disillusioned supporters to lapse into apathy or ineffective muttering, thus opening the gates for a lurch to the left in 2020. I mention these scenarios not because I necessarily expect them to occur, but to underscore a sobering fact. How much of the fate of the current populist insurrection and of American conservatism too now rests on the mercurial personality of one man. My final category of analysis concerns the nature of populism itself. The great intrinsic strength of populism is that it gives a voice to the hitherto voiceless, who often have legitimate grievances that re deserve redress. And as Roger mentioned in his introduction, the people are supposed to rule, and often they feel that they're not being listened to at all, that government is not of and by the people, but only for the people. But populism also suffers from three problematic features. First, populist eruptions, like volcanic eruptions in nature, tend to be spasmodic and relatively brief. They are apt to die down when the economic upheavals with which they are usually associated start to dissipate. Moreover, populist mobilizations are almost invariably reactive. And those doing the reacting the polls are generally people for whom politics is not a daily preoccupation, unlike the ruling elites against whom they rebel. For conservatives in 2017, this raises a question. How long will it be before the current populist eruption subsides and normal politics, that is to say elite-dominated politi elite politics, reasserts itself? The second problematic feature of populism is encapsulated in a remark by the American patriot leader James Otis in 1775 at the start of the American Revolution. He said, when the pot boils, the scum will rise. <laughs> Visitors to the comments pages of some of our internet websites may sympathize with that remark. Populism by its nature is a creature of frustration and passion. It also tends to be harshly critical of the institutions where the elites whom it despises hold sway. Thus, it should not surprise us that in America and other nations, populist movements have produced more than a few eccentric and unpolished leaders, often drawn from outside the institutions of so-called polite society. For conservative intellectuals who believe that successful democracies require statesmanship and civic virtue, one of the most troubling features of populism is the frequently erratic character of its leadership. 
Can populist leaders be converted into statesmen? For conservatives, this is always a vexing question when populist uprisings occur. The third problematic aspect of populism is the tribalistic overtones of its rhetoric. This too. Thank you so much, Roger, and uh, thank you. It's always an honor to participate in this conference, and I always feel uh, I come away with it uh, with a great deal more than I contribute to it, but you keep inviting me back anyway, so. Um, I also, I must say, George's jest about rising above principle reminded me of the uh, federal judge who used to admonish us never to compromise on a matter of principle, but to try to have as few matters of principle as possible. <laughs> um, that's how you got Trump. That phrase seemed at first to be a playful quip, uttered here and there as the left's shock and horror over the election of President Donald J. Trump manifested itself in memorably, memorably bizarre ways. Grieving centers on university campuses where tender 20-somethings and the tenured radicals who instruct them were invited to stroke therapy dogs, scribble in coloring books, stack Legos, and do their brave best to cope. At Cornell, they even stage a cry-in, with the Ivy League University staff providing tissues and hot chocolate gratis, or as gratis as it gets after mom and dad have ponied up the $70,321 in annual tuition and fees. Uh, alas, it's not a quip anymore. Uh, that's how you got Trump has become a constant refrain. Shock among self-proclaimed progressives has devolved into anger. Rage has fueled a full-time tantrum. A competition among distraught student bodies, Hollywood heavyweights, community organizers, pop stars, sanctuary city pals, froth-flecked pundits, smoldering social media, and rabble-rousers from Black Lives Matter to Antifa, which is a fascist projection outfit, all vie to be the most outrageous, the most rabidly anti-Trump. As we've transitioned from the Donald's populist candidacy through eight months of populism in power, there are two things worth observing about the president and his opposition. The first involves the conventional wisdom that the United States is a deeply divided country. It misstates the case. What we are is an intensely divided country. To say that America is deeply divided implies what the left-leaning media would have us believe, namely that the likes of Antifa, and politicians such as Bernie Sanders, the self-proclaimed socialist who nearly bested Hillary Clinton for the Democratic presidential nomination, are representative of what virtually half the country thinks. It's simply not true. Of course, it is incontestable that social justice warriors have made significant inroads on the campus. They hold sway over the organs of popular culture and public opinion. But they are punching way above their weight. In terms of raw numbers, they do not reflect what 50% of the country thinks, but what 100% of the country is fed, night in and night out. In the information age, where more hard data is at our fingertips than earlier generations could imagine, it requires less effort than ever to become informed. Our society has responded by investing, well, less effort than ever. It has come to prefer narrative to fact, 
and political correctness to analysis. The media, consequently, is not just a propagandist in its own right, it is the wind at the back of a movement, giving its strategists coverage, taking their grievances oh so seriously. But a movement is a faction, not a majority. It is trying to move the society because it doesn't actually call the tune, even if it seems that way. That is why the phrase, that's how you got Trump, makes sense, why it resonates. It is an expression invoked as much by Trump's skeptical conservative critics as by his populist followers that diagnoses why he so improbably won. The secret has much less to do with the president than with his opposition. When Antifa arsonists riot at Berkeley to prevent a speech by Milo Yiannopoulos, a flamboyant alt-right provocateur that most of the country has never even heard of, when the radical campus left uses violence and its consequent heckler's veto to shut down speakers as accomplished and ideologically diverse as Charles Murray, Heather McDonald, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and James Comey, the movement tells itself that it is controlling the parameters of what may be discussed, what may be taught, and what may be thought in our society. The rest of us smirk through our outrage and say, that's how you got Trump. It turns out that progressives do not have a grip on the hearts and minds of the society, notwithstanding their hold on its bipartisan ruling class and opinion elites. Eventually, the bubbling disgust and resentments of a great mass of the country were going to boil over. As it happens, they did so by channeling into the candidacy of Donald Trump. That is not the only explanation for why he won. In fact, as we examine the state of play in America, it is critical to bear in mind that perhaps it is the less significant of two explanations, the other being the fortuity that the Democrats chose to oppose him with the worst political candidate in modern American history, an establishment pillar universally thought corrupt, who had no real personal accomplishments, who had performed incompetently, indeed criminally, when trusted with power, whose candidacy bespoke entitlement rather than vision, who was under felony investigation during the race and escaped indictment only because her political allies were in power, and who ran a campaign so entropic that she did not deign to appear in key battleground states that she smugly assumed were in the bag. I say that this is the more significant explanation for Trump's victory because, despite all these demerits, Hillary Clinton still outpaced Trump by nearly three million votes. She bested him by more than 2%. Historically, that's almost always enough to win. The left's mantra that Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote is an overstatement. In reality, 52% of voters cast their ballots for other candidates. Most of those were Trump voters, a sizable chunk of whom were voting against Hillary, not for Trump. But as Trump has struggled to turn his statistically improbable electoral college victory into a governing mandate, it is worth bearing in mind that he came to office with more opposition and fewer enthusiastic supporters than any president in memory. Which brings us to Trump himself, the second point. In terms of moving the policies on which he ran, the president is stuck in the mud. In part, this is because he is personally more comfortable playing to his committed backers than trying to expand his base. Those committed backers maintain that this approach is refreshing. 
illustrating that he is not a conventional politician. But of course, there is unconventional, and then there's just plain obtuse. The problem is that Trump's real base constitutes, at best, about a third of the electorate. To be sure, this faction is a force to be reckoned with at primary time, which we discussed just a few moments ago. Though the president should have known this better than anyone, he was painfully reminded of it in Alabama earlier this week. In a GOP primary over the unexpired term of the seat formerly held by Jeff Sessions, whom Trump made attorney general, Trump was persuaded by Beltway Republicans to back Luther Strange, the establishment incumbent candidate. In the event, Strange was thumped by Judge Roy Moore, a controversial upstart who, ironically, was running as the hardcore Trumpist candidate. Primaries are small turnout contests. Establishment incumbents who excite no one must always worry about highly motivated opposition. Over decades, this dynamic has pulled the Democrats to the extreme left. Since 2010, it has begun to pull Republicans toward the Tea Party right and now toward Trump populism with which limited government conservatives both collude and compete. That, however, is over time. In the here and now, Trump's base is more of a catalyst than a concern for Democrats, and it has not much intimidated Beltway Republicans in leadership and in safe seats. Trump's base is enough to win primaries and tight elections. It is not a governing coalition. This deficiency goes a long way toward explaining the president's compulsion to expound on what he calls his landslide electoral college margin of victory. In actuality, Trump's win ranks in the bottom tier, 46th out of American history's 58 electoral college tallies. Tepid support also uh, explains Trump's agitation about the crowd size at his inauguration and his popular celebrity penchant to obsess over polls and ratings numbers. Yes, the president is self-absorbed and his skin is notoriously thin. But pathology aside, he senses the need to project support if he is going to get his policy preferences enacted into law. He plainly wants to be reelected, and he is shrewd enough to realize that lightning will not strike twice. He will need real economic growth and shared prosperity, not the mere hope for them, if he is to win a second term. He cannot achieve these things by executive order. They will require legislation, making it imperative that he cobble together more support. <clears throat> My Marco Rubio moment. Okay. <laughs> Trump's unimpressive approval numbers are not his presidency's biggest challenge, though. His real problem is his populist lack of conviction and consequent lack of coherence. As conservative skeptics warned, Trump is not a true believer in his campaign's signature issues, enforcement of the immigration laws, confronting the ideological underpinnings of what he called radical Islamic terrorism, the repeal of Obamacare, the refusal to entangle our armed forces in impossible nation-building exercises, the draining of Washington's swamp, and so on. These are easy things to rail about on the hustings, especially in the Manichaean setting of a campaign in which the alternative, as he put it to such great effect, is crooked Hillary. But they are very hard policies to implement. Bombast is effective on the campaign trail, bringing into sharp relief, even exaggerating the differences between candidates. Governance, by contrast, 
requires choosing between the bad and the worse, or at least it often does. Altering policy in a system of divided government calls for de a deft combination of compromise, coalition building, and persuasion. In an age of rage at the political establishment, being an unconventional outsider could be a major advantage, but it is no substitute for mastering policy details. That is the minimal presidential requirement for using the bully pulpit effectively, for knowing when to hold them and when to fold them, for demonstrating the art of the deal. On issue after issue, the president is not informed enough, seems disinclined to do the homework, and shifts gears haphazardly when it dawns on him that the sweeping commitments he made in the artificial simplicity of the campaign actually require steps that are as unpopular as they may be necessary. For example, Trump vowed to repeal and replace Obamacare, that he'd be ready to do it on day one. It was red meat for his base, but seemed more than a little cynically opportunistic coming from a man on record as an admirer of single-payer government-controlled healthcare systems. Turns out, who'd have thought, that healthcare policy is hard. To take just the most obvious point, you cannot have a free market in insurance, which is anticipation of the risk of illness, while mandating insurance coverage of pre-existing conditions, which is compensation for illness that has already happened, virtually the opposite of insurance. Having it all is the dream of delusional feminists and the promise of giddy populist stump speakers. To govern is to choose. Like congressional Republicans who were all for repealing Obamacare as long as they knew Obama would veto it, President Trump does not want a repeal that would hold him accountable for a dramatic increase in the number of uninsured Americans, even if the reality is that many of these Americans would be uninsured by choice. While he wants less regulation than Obama, he still wants substantial regulation, including mandatory coverage of the sick and of children up to the age of 26. That necessarily drives up costs and the taxes and subsidies needed to pay for them. But Trump also wants to be seen as against regulations and against taxes, the bane of his base's existence. The predictable result is stalemate. Do Capitol Hill Republicans uh, deserve our censure for their hypocrisy? Of course they do. They promised to uh, repeal in each of the last four election cycles. Voters rewarded them, and it turns out they were never serious. But all that said, Trump could only lead them out of their dilemma if he had a plan and the capacity to sell it. He doesn't have a plan, he hasn't mastered the details, and he is left complaining that after seven years of promising repeal, Republicans turned out not to want repeal. This complaint would carry more weight if Trump wanted repeal, rather than an Obamacare light that could be branded repeal. Then there's immigration enforcement. Build that wall was the signature promise of the Trump campaign. There was no need to get into a lot of minutia about the legislation and budget needed to make such things happen because, of course, Mexico was going to pay for it. Every illegal alien, all 11 million and more of them, was going to be deported. But after the prohibitive expense of that exercise, most of them were going to be brought back legally. Some of us had the temerity to point out that this was just amnesty of the so-called touchback variety. Trump enthusiasts did not want to hear it fired up by the candidate's mantra that without deportations, we have no borders, and without borders, we have no country. Plus, 
Trump had also promised that as soon as he took office, he would rescind Obama's unconstitutional DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Initiative. Under DACA, the former administration granted de facto amnesty and work permits to the children of illegal aliens, including children who are now in their 30s. But then the race was run, won, rather, and it came time for Trump to govern. After eight months, there is no wall and no prospect of one. Mexico won't pay for it, and neither will Congress. Build that wall has devolved into something more like maintain that fencing. <laughs> the mass deportations were never going to happen either, just the amnesty without the touchback, or at least some of the amnesty. Trump not only failed to rescind DACA on his first day in office, he continued the program and quite publicly wrung his hands over what to do about it, as if he'd never mentioned DACA, much less promised to do away with it immediately. Turns out it was complicated. Trump is sympathetic to the so-called dreamers, which is no surprise to anyone who followed his pre-presidential career filled with donations to open borders politicians and sympathy for comprehensive immigration reform, which is Washington speak for amnesty now, enforcement, maybe someday. In our present moment, which is what matters most to a populist, dreamers are popular. The president no more wants to be responsible for their deportation than for the difficulty a person has getting health insurance once he's already sick. We could keep adding to the list. The Iran nuclear pact, which Trump called the worst deal in history, has been <coughs> recertified twice by Trump's State Department, even though, by statute, the certification may happen only if the president finds that Iran is in compliance and the deal is in American national security interests, both of which are laughable claims. After no shortage of hemming and hawing, Trump, uh, Trump rightly pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, but now he's recently singled, uh, signaled an openness to rejoining. Trump's travel restrictions on aliens resulted in a raft of litigation accusing him of anti-Muslim bias. To defend the president, the administration vehemently denied that Islam was being considered in visa issuance decisions. This legal argument makes it practically impossible to justify screening applicants for adherence to political Islam, meaning the fallout of the travel orders, which do little to actually improve security, is that Trump's campaign promise of extreme vetting will go unfulfilled. After claiming that there were no vital American interests in Syria and that President Obama would need congressional approval to attack the Assad regime, U.S. armed forces are now occupying territory in Syria and have attacked regime targets without congressional authorization. Now, all of this is not to say that there have been no successes. There have been crucial ones, in fact. The added entanglement in Syria is the fallout of Trump's following through on the promise to demolish ISIS in its so-called caliphate. To be sure, Solving one problem gives rise to others. The vanquished jihadists are making their way to the West. Assad's survival makes Iran more formidable and Russia more of a regional player. And if the Sunni-Shiite divide does not trigger a major war, the Kurdish push for independence might. Nevertheless, the humiliation of jihadist organizations is imperative if we are to suppress the attractiveness of jihadism to young Muslims. In a region where it's always pick your poison, 
Trump was right to decide that it is better to live with the, prob the problems caused by eradicating ISIS than it is to live with ISIS itself. While he lacks legislative wins, President Trump has been able to roll back economically ruinous Obama-era regulations. This has dramatically improved the business climate and the prospects for energy security. The booming stock market tells us this is so. It is also a valuable lesson, and it's a lesson that came up in the discussion uh, after George's paper. Uh, a president can imperiously proclaim, as Obama did, that he doesn't need Congress because he has a pen and a phone. But anything done by executive order can also be undone by executive order. Enduring political change still requires enough consensus to legislate. President Trump has Democratic legislators to thank for his greatest successes. The appointment of a stellar Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch, as well as the confirmation of what on the whole is a very impressive uh, cabinet. In order to ram through Obama's appointees, Democrats used their brief control of Congress to end the filibuster for all but Supreme Court nominees. When the worm turned, Democrats had not only had no means to block Trump's nominees, they had no plausible argument for maintaining the filibuster for the Supreme Court. That ensured Justice Gorsuch's confirmation. This brings us at last to the main reason we got Trump. The president is a bigger-than-life character. He has lots of charisma, energy, and comic timing to go with his titanic ego, solipsism, and character flaws. He knows how to fill a room, draw attention, and control a news cycle. With so dominant and so visible a figure, it is easy to forget that he is not the most consequential story in our politics, that he is the effect of a phenomenon, not its cause. Americans, like populations throughout the West, are rejecting their political establishments. Those establishments have been progressive for decades. With this central planning, redistributionist, income equality crew calling the tune, disparities in income, prosperity, and opportunity have grown to new heights. So has crony capitalism and the perception that the system is rigged to benefit the connected as long as they keep paying for the connection. The result is that voters have abandoned Democrats in droves at every level of government. Well over a thousand seats have shifted nationwide. We're not just talking about Congress and the White House. Municipal bodies, state legislatures, and governorships have shifted massively away from Democrats. Mind you, it is not that voters have suddenly become fond of Republicans. Republicans often seem to be reviled more by their own base supporters than by the left. But Democrats would love to have the GOP's problems. Obscured by the outsized presence of Trump and the progressive dominance of the media is the disintegration of the nation's most long-standing major political party. Oh, it won't disappear. As long as Democrats can still win the presidency, which they most certainly can, they will remain powerful, for the office has been endowed with great power. But the Democratic Party has become a grievance magnet, a home for disparate groups united principally by their disdain for this or that aspect of American society. There is a realignment underway. It could well be that uh, no, not one but both of the two major parties are fading away. The two-party structure could eventually be supplanted by multiple parties or no parties, 
with social media and information age technology rendering the traditional political party obsolete. How the populist wave, in all its internal contradictions, will finally reshape the political establishment is not yet knowable. But here's something that is knowable. When the ruling class and its media allies rally to the defense of millionaire athletes rebuking the national anthem in support of an oppression narrative, you know that that's how you got Trump. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. <clears throat> I was wondering how we got Trump. No. <laughs> so, Jim, you have a question? Uh, I think Andy kind of answered this, but I think it was, was it Socrates who, when asked, how's your wife, said, compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> so when I was asked last year, a lot of us were asked last year, what do you think of Donald Trump? We often said, compared to what? And that was Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. So, you know, it's too early to think about uh, the next presidential election. But when Donald Trump, if he, uh, if he makes it that far, is paired off against a Senator Warren or a Cory Booker or a Kamala Harris or some such candidate, isn't it possible or even likely that despite his low popularity ratings, he might easily defeat those uh, rivals, barring a recession or a catastrophe. I, th I think if he doesn't get um, the economic growth that they hope for, and there's, there's positive signs in that direction, he won't easily beat anyone. I, I mean, if we think about it, the, t the table was set up about as well as it could be set up for him this time, um, and the statistical improbability of winning after losing by the number that he lost by in the popular vote, and the fact that if I think 70 or 80,000 votes shifted in three different places, which is significantly less than 1% of the total vote, um, we wouldn't be talking about populism. We'd be talking about how a, a pillar of the political establishment comfortably won election. So I, I think he's got to have more than the Democrats because, as I said in the, in the paper, I don't think there's a chance that kind of lightning strikes twice. But he's got a very good chance to be reelected uh, if, he, if he governs effectively. I mean, if, if what people take away is not exhaustion over the constant um, rhetoric and, and uh, high, hijinks that go on, and instead they think about um, the federal reaction to the tornado or to the hurricanes uh, down in the south, which has been so stellar you haven't heard a word about it. You know, if they come away and they think that, you know, bottom line is this guy knows what he's doing, he's pro-American, um, the, foreign, the foreign policy may not be smoothly articulable, but it's, we're a lot stronger overseas than we were during the Obama years, and they actually look at, you know, the likes of Kamala Harris and, and, and uh, her ilk, yeah, I think he's got a very good chance to win. Yeah, I mean, I know second quarter of growth was just adjusted just upward to 3.1%. 3. That's enough. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, another factor of course running up to the next election will be whatever happens internationally. And the Clearly, American voters make their own decisions on terms of what's happening in America, but the skill or otherwise of the particular candidates confronting challenges in the Middle East or East Asia 
would, I think, be fairly significant. I mean, if you think about it, um, the likelihood 2020 for you is probably the American presidency is the key issue. If you were the North Korean state and you were looking at some something to get some real publicity, try firing a missile over Tokyo into the Sea of Japan during the Olympic opening ceremony. Yeah. And I think that the, the probability will be that the Americans might well gauge their potential leader, their president, by what they see as the advisability or resolve quality or character that they can offer in confronting foreign challenges. Yeah, I, I mean, there really is a challenge in the case of North Korea. There's no two ways about it. I mean, you know, the, the, you're not, the principal challenge, incidentally, the one I'm surprised that hasn't been really discussed very much in the press, the principal challenge is not so much North Korea having its bomb and its missile delivery system. We know that. And uh, the principal challenge is who it sells it to. The North Koreans are desperately short of money. There are no shortage of NGOs around the world, like Hamas or Hezbollah, who would be quite happy to buy this stuff. And um, so I think the real challenge is North Korea trying to sell this stuff and the United States as a sovereign state trying to stop another sovereign state doing so. And I wish good luck to the Americans, but they're probably going to have to be pretty robust. No, I, I think we have good reason to think the North Koreans are actually working with the Iranians now. Yes, And yes. that the Iranians are, uh, are much more flush with cash um, and much more equipped to be an effective ally um, because, of the, because yes. of the Iran nuclear deal. Well, just very quickly, just think through this following scenario. In 1962, you had the Cuba Missile Crisis. 2020, what happens if Kim decides to flog it cheaply to somebody like President Maduro? You know, in other words, in, in what is recognizably American, near America. And I put it to you that um, that, that would become the decisive episode in an electoral cycle, how you just choose to uh, respond to that. A lot will matter in terms of whether Americans feel like if there is a a, a real threat environment, which increasingly, of course, there is, whether they feel more comfortable with somebody like Trump as opposed to somebody more like Obama uh, in charge. And I think a lot of people will remember that the reason this threat environment got to the stage that it's at is largely because of the way Obama either Spot so on. passively uh, managed on. it. But the, the other thing I, I always am fearful of in the foreign policy realm, and that, this is why I'm glad, Jeremy, that you brought it up, is that they are the most, in addition to being the most defining challenges of, for an administration, they're the most unpredictable ones. I, I had the, um, uh, the, the good fortune to be uh, working at the Pentagon briefly uh, around the time after 9-11, and I was struck by the fact that um, President Bush had run as the anti nation-building candidate. And when, when we were at the Pentagon, they do a quadrennial review mm -hmm. that actually was completed the week before 9-11, in which they were trying to move to a lighter, faster, mm -hmm. quick-strike military, and saying that the days of, of having you know huge conventional forces were mm -hmm. behind us. We just had to move on. And then 9-11 happened, and suddenly we're in this extravagant nation-building exercise where you need a heavy yeah. footprint. So um, the, the lesson from all of that, I think, is that these are the hardest, uh, the hardest things to predict, and that um, you know, the idea that, that 
we always plan for the challenge that we think we have in front of us and the one that we just uh, wrestled with. Uh, but what, what ends up happening is the unpredictable and the unknown, and that, that's, that is obviously the biggest problem. George? Yes, uh, Andy, thank you for your fine paper. Uh, one thing that occurred to me listening to it is that uh, one of the scenarios here, I would call it a tragic possibility, is that um, Trump will give his base words, as he did during the campaign, but the deeds of the administration, as you pointed out, do not always match the words uh, in terms of uh, immigration, DACA, and, and healthcare, and other things. This raises a question, does how much does Trump believe in Trumpism? And do you see any signs that he is, as they would say, uh, and I use this neutrally, growing in office? Is he learning from his experience in a way that would lead us to have more hope that a constructive, accomplished set of accomplishments will occur? Or is the base going to be revved up with, with rallies and, and, and fighting words and sensationalism, bombast as I think somebody put it, and meanwhile we have a kind of a continuity of policy with a good deal of what was already in place when he came into office? Well, I, George, I think just the fact that we have to ask how much of a believer Trump is in Trumpism underscores how they, it really is a, a phenomenon unto itself. And though um, I've always thought he really is the effect of it, not the cause of it. Um, and it does have an independent, a life independent uh, of him. In fact, from where I sit, I think the phenomenon has more to do with the Tea Party roots than it does with Trump. Mm -hmm. I think Trump, uh, in a way, masterfully managed to attack himself to the grievances of a movement that already existed against uh, the elites, the ruling elites in, in Washington. I think he's much more um, an orchestrator of it than he is a, a, a producer of, of the movement. Um, how much does he believe in it? Uh, I think there are things that he does believe in. I, I, I think that Trump really does um, love the country, um, and I think he's a big believer in law enforcement and a strong military. I don't think that that's just posturing. I think he actually does believe that. Um, and I think he, he's, sometimes it's more important what his instincts are than, than what his beliefs are, mm -hmm. and that's frankly because he hasn't studied up on a number of things. But I, the, the one I've been most frustrated, to, to give a concrete example, is uh, radical Islamic terrorism, which he said again and again during the campaign, we can't be afraid to say radical Islamic terrorism, uh, and that that's the enemy. And I wanted to give him credit, which I did, for, for being willing to say that, especially when his opposition wasn't. Um, but it did raise the question of what was his understanding of what radical Islamic terrorism is, and how informed was his view that you have to be able to invoke it in order to combat it effectively. And I think what we've since found is that he really hadn't thought about it much. It was a good line in the campaign. Um, he, a, as you've seen over time, the mentions of radical Islamic terrorism have become um, fewer and fewer. Um, they, they've actually uh, almost dropped out of sight. There was nothing about it, for example, in the UN speech. Um, he has joined 
forces with the, uh, or uh, allied with the Saudi side of the uh, Sunni-Shiite divide uh, in a way that Obama seemed to be weighing down on the scales of the, of the Shiite side. Um, but I don't think that the, the underlying principles of Islamic fundamentalism are affecting his thinking one way or the other. It's, it's, and, and maybe this is the way it should be gone about. It's, it's his sense of what America's interests are in the region, and he doesn't want to get involved in the, uh, uh, in the granular level of um, radical Islam. But then by, by not doing that, um, he's ill-equipped to deal with the, with the real problem that we have in our security environment domestically, which is not just the infiltration of trained jihadists into the country with, you know, sneaking their way in with, uh, with these immigrant and refugee populations. The real challenge we have, and you need only look at Europe to see it, um, is if you have uncontrolled or mass immigration of anti-assimilationist populations, you create enclaves throughout your own country where there's a parallel system of law and, and culture, and that becomes the support system in which you get terrorism, incitement, recruitment, fundraising, and the like. So what I'm much more worried about is the 14-year-old kid who's going to become a jihadist five years from now than I am, not to say this is not a concern, the 21-year-old who's already a trained jihadist who manages to sneak in with a refugee population. And that, that is what I think you miss if you just use, you throw out terms like radical Islamic terrorism as rhetoric and you don't study what it is that yeah. you're actually confronting. Yeah. Thank you. Chris? Yeah, Andy, you, um, you asked the question, how did we get Trump? Uh, to me, there's a there's another element of it that you just you didn't get to in your paper, which is that there's a frustration on the part of, of voters that they've been electing Republicans who don't seem to uh, who don't seem to act. On the one hand, they're wedded to a sort of anachronistic set of policy prescriptions, and, and on the other, seem unwilling or unable to act. I'm thinking particularly about Congress, but not only about Congress. So when you think uh, when you talk about repealing Obamacare, Congress was unable to do this in December. Paul Ryan. Uh, was out uh, on some of the news shows saying, you know, we might have a bill on the desk, on, on the president's desk on January 20th. Um, that, is, that to me is in part how we got Trump was just a frustration with, uh, with having elected, you, you having the 2010 Tea Party election, that got nothing for that. At what point uh, do you think our, the, at what point do you think Congress gets the message that they need to actually act? That they, there's, I get the sense that there's a that they that there's a lot of uh, Republicans in Congress who have at least until recently hoped they could wait out Trump and figure out what to, what comes next. But at some point, that they need to do something because the frustration um, and the criticism from the electorate is pointed right now is pointed at them, not at the president, or at least from Republicans. Chris, I, I think they worry more about primaries than anything else because that's the. Uh that's the ticket out of power. And this may be the real dysfunction in our system because the electorate that participates in primaries is not necessarily representative of the general electorate, particularly the electorate that we see in presidential 
elections every four years, which is markedly different even than the electorate we see in the uh, midterm elections. Um, it's in primaries and in the midterms where the real um, activist movements have the most um, bang for their buck, and they can usually push a candidate who would not be acceptable broad-based to, to, uh, to the country. And I guess the fear I have, that I'm, look, I, I think the, the Republicans are, uh, would you say spineless, spineless invertebrates? Yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, <laughs> sure, I, I, I think they are. But I can't help on some level having some sympathy for them, even in looking at an election that Trump won and realizing that Trump won with 54% of the country voting against him and many people who voted for him doing it with, with great reluctance. Um, you know, there's a reason the Republicans didn't want to repeal Obamacare. It's disgraceful that they ran around saying they would do it when they actually had no intention of doing it, but that doesn't mean that the reluctance to do it is inexplicable. The, they don't want to do it because it would be very unpopular with a lot of people in the country who have not come around, maybe because of the way the culture is, and maybe because of the way we've been governed for, for decades, but they have not come around to the idea that you actually need to pay for um, <laughs> the entitlement stake. Um, and they believe that you know you can just get more, 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 and, uh, and <coughs> someone will pay for it, and they're they're entitled to that. Um, I I I wondered uh, aloud recently at National Review. I didn't get any takers about whether anyone was willing any longer to defend the proposition that you are not entitled to health care as a right. Nobody wants to take that on, but it's a fact. You're not entitled to health care as a right. You know, health insurance is a commodity. It's like any other commodity that you, you know, if you get arrested, you're entitled to a lawyer. That's in the Constitution. But you don't get a doctor if you get sick. Um, we have people in the conservative movement who wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, but it's an absolute constitutional fact. You're not entitled to a doctor. So, you know, I think Republicans who are in the professional business of politics and who look at what it takes to get elected are much more hesitant to take um, to act on the positions that they so cavalierly take on the campaign trail, and that's and that's one of them. And one of the things we need to worry about is we don't want to see happen to the Republican Party. I think what has <coughs> happened to the Democratic Party, which is that precisely this dynamic difference between the electorate in the primaries and the electorate in the general election has pulled the Democrats dramatically to the left, to the point where there are no, you know, there's no Scoop Jackson Democrats anymore. I know this because I talked to Jim Woolsey, the former CIA director, and he told me he was the last one, and, and you know, he's pretty much uh, retired out of it. So um, I, I think it would be a very bad thing for the country if one side got pulled, one side has already been pulled uh, to an irrational uh, extreme, uh, and we need to be, just like Trump needs to figure out how to cobble together support to move legislation, we need to understand that, you know, there's a conservative movement and there's our principles and our ideals and we do pursue them all the time, but we have to pursue them in a practical environment of realism about what can be achieved. And it's, it's perfectly fine to be incensed at the notion that the Republicans won't even do what's achievable, 
but I do think you need to at least understand that there's reason for their reluctance. So, so in other words, prudence means being willing to rise above principle. Precisely. Philip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I just wanted to touch on uh, the suggestion that's arisen that perhaps uh, Trump doesn't keep his promises the because of the polls. And uh, I, I, like the I like the thought that what will really matter is the economy and all these promises won't matter. I just want to repeat something that I heard during the election when so many of my liberal friends said, did you hear what he said? It's so extravagant. How could any sane person vote for him? And the, the answer, I didn't invent this, this was on the web, that liberals take Trump literally but not seriously and conservatives take him seriously but not literally. And so maybe there's a maturity amongst the electorate. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I also think, though, it, it, it really does go back to what Jim said earlier, and that is it, ma it makes a great deal of difference who the opposition right. is. Um, Trump will be, if, if things are on a generally good trajectory, Trump will be forgiven for an awful lot of, uh, of broken promises if he's running against someone like Kamala Harris. You know, that's, I think that's just a fact. Yep. Uh, one question and then an observation. The question is, uh, you said lots of the Trump, Trumpism sort of draws, draws on the Tea Party. So it's mainly a sort of Tea Party phenomenon, and that should be seen as the origin. Isn't his sort of uniqueness fusing the Tea Party with trade protectionism? I know you've had previous American politicians uh, going on about trade protectionism, such as Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan, but isn't the sort of unique Trump, Trumpism of putting these two sets of ideas together, which haven't been together before? And secondly, just an observation on healthcare, which is, uh, if you look at UK experience, unless you, unless the US reforms the Obama care in very soon, I think there's very little chance that you'll be able to reform it at all. I mean, in Britain, any any attempt to move away from healthcare, which is free at the point of delivery, uh, paid through, paid through by tax, has not made any traction other than in very peripheral areas. Once. Uh, and no, no politician, not even Margaret Thatcher, would countenance the, the, the opinion is it's political suicide to suggest that there should be an insurance-based system or a, or, a, or a system where it isn't free at the point of delivery. So my point there would be that if you don't reform it quickly, you won't be reforming healthcare here for a very long time. The British system's lasted 70 years with, and there's no sign of any major changes to happening. Well, I, on that point, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, some of us uh, were defenders of Ted Cruz. Was it back in uh, 2013? I think it was 2013. Um, when most of the political establishment was castigating him for uh, the government shutdown, which they said would be that you know the sky would fall. Of course, the government shutdown means that 85% of the government still churns along, so it's, it's not much of a shutdown. But um, there were going to be terrible political consequences for it, and of course there weren't. There was actually a landslide Republican win in the next um, cycle. But Cruz's point was at that moment, Obamacare was going to go from um, a design to something that was actually being implemented, and that its tentacles were going to start uh, to work its way through the system. And I think you know, one of the, the genius of Obama, no matter what you think of, uh, of his politics, is his understanding that um, 
if you if you do massive legislation, if you manage the, to to get that enacted, and even if you don't do legislation, if you do big deals where you're the the president and you're in control of how things get uh, get implemented over a period of time, what you can do is change the facts on the ground to such a great extent that it becomes politically impossible for your successor to reverse them, even if it's theoretically legally yeah. possible. So, Michael, I, I, I worry that we're actually past the, the Rubicon on Obamacare, but I do agree that uh, you know, with, with each opportunity to do something about it, it becomes less likely that anything will ever be done about it, short of uh, you know, when the financial uh, system underpinning it uh, collapses. As far as the, um, the Tea Party and um, Trump's populist movement, I, I don't mean to suggest that there, um, uh, that there aren't significant differences between the two. But my, my point was simply that um, the question is, how much does Trump believe in Trumpism? And I, my sense is that there may be more commonality between the Tea Party roots of what I now, of what has evolved into a, a kind of a grassroots partnership between the Trumpists and the Tea Party people. They may have more in toto in common than we'll, we'll conclude that Trump has with Trumpism. Uh, the jury's out on that. We'll have to see how much he follows through on what he committed to, but it'll be interesting to see. I think we'll take uh, two more questions and then uh, have a break, so uh, Daniel Douglas. Okay, so first, um, a very small correction, uh, Andy. You said that Trump had stopped using the phrase radical Islamic terrorism, specifically in the UN speech. I just looked it up, and he did indeed say on Tuesday, uh, we will stop radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, and he's done this consistently. He did it even in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he used the word Islamic even when his speechwriters wanted him to say Islamist. And he does this quite deliberately, as I'm sure you, you're well aware, uh, because he knows it's divisive. He knows that this creates uh, uh, a them and us kind of division, which he can then use and mobilize politically. And he's done this brilliantly on many occasions. He's doing it right now with the uh, NFL protest. Uh, he knows that he has the majority on his side, and um, this is how he also destroyed all his political rivals, uh, including uh, the darling of the Tea Party, Ted Cruz, very effectively. Um, so my real point is, don't let's underestimate this guy. Uh, we talked in this conference so far only about American populism. But the title is actually Populism in General. And of course, it's a worldwide phenomenon right now. But no other country has produced a leader, a populist leader, remotely in the same league of political uh, savviness and uh, ruthlessness as Donald Trump. I mean, you know, you compare him with somebody like Marine Le Pen in France, she was flat-footed and, and clumsy and uh, just easily outmaneuvered by a relative novice like Emmanuel Macron. Um, the Germans, despite the success of this new AFD party, they can't even decide who the leader is, let alone have somebody, uh, I mean, maybe this is to do with the Germans being terrified of the Führerprinzip, you know, they, 
they don't want a Führer because, uh, because look what happened last time. But anyway, it's a leaderless party. Um, Geert Wilders in, in uh, the Netherlands, um, despite the fact that, uh, uh, you know, the, the Dutch clearly are looking for a populist leader, but he's not the guy. He's too weird. He has funny hair, you know, all this sort of thing. Trump is, compared to all these people, these pygmies, he is a genius. And so when we talk about his personal defects and his extravagance and his bombast and all the rest of it, that's all true. Uh, and he certainly is a narcissist. Uh, and you might throw in a few more things. He's a bit paranoid and he's a bit of a megalomaniac. Maybe, maybe Kim Jong-un is right about that. But never mind. It doesn't matter. The guy is a political genius. And uh, you know, this, this, is, this is a rare thing. There are, there, are, there are many populists in the world, but there's only one who's really popular, and it's Trump. Here, here. Uh, Andrew, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your. <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your, your presentation. I was very struck by the list of examples you gave, where Trump had been um, ineffective in actually affecting change. Um, it was really more of an observation than a than a than a question. But you you closed by talking about a possible future with no parties or with new parties. Um, and you alluded to the fact that digital may mean that um, you, you move to a world where some of the established uh, features of our democracy with its two-party systems may, may, may change. I, I, I was always struck when I was in the House of Commons how many Conservative MPs regarded it as their job to be Eurosceptic and were slightly put out by the impertinence of these UKIP people coming along and doing their job for them. And I wonder if perhaps people within the American conservative movement regard it as their job to be anti-the Democrats and are slightly put out when Trump and his lot come along and do it better. I mean, in the UK, the Labour members of Parliament are really offended that Jeremy Corbyn's come along and is offering an alternative to the Tories. They regard that as their job. They've been hopeless at doing it. Um, and, and they're feeling quite offended. So perhaps one of the ways of looking at populism is to see it as the inability for people to control particular movements, movements becoming much more fluid and self-defining. And, and bluntly, if you don't do the job of opposing stuff very well, someone comes along and does it better than you, and no one, no one has a right to wear the crown by virtue of holding a particular office. Um, if, if you're not good at doing it, someone else will come along and take the job for you. Right. I, I think that's a great point. Part of what we have in the, in the ruling class is, um, and not only an effort, a successful effort uh, to define this is what a conservative is, this is how we oppose the other side, and they don't like gate crashers. And yeah. Washington is amazing at, at that. I, I remember when I first left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was, uh, I was asked to, um, to be on 60 Minutes, which I ordinarily wouldn't have done, except they, they asked me to be their legal expert in some dispute, so I figured they couldn't slice and dice the tape to make me look like a fool if they were um, uh, bringing me in to, to, I guess, do that to someone else. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I end up sitting for an interview with uh, Leslie Stahl, who's an absolutely lovely, wonderful um, person and, and as gracious as, uh, uh, as, as uh, she is lovely. Um, but we get to talking, and she knew I was working at the Pentagon at the time, and I was working for Paul Wolfowitz, who was deputy uh, 
defense secretary at the time. And uh, after we get to convincing for a while, she said, um, let me ask you something about Wolfowitz. Is he as crazy as Cheney? <laughs> and it was, it was there, and uh, you know, I, I actually was not a Washington creature. I actually tried to mind my business and stay up in New York as much as possible during the 20 years I was in the, in the Justice Department. Um, but in, there in just one question, what she hammered over my head was, we're not even going to discuss whether Cheney is crazy or not. That's a given. We have judicial notice. He's a nut. And then the only question is going to be, is this other guy who we don't know as well, um, you know, on that side of the, uh, of, of yeah. the uh, freaky-deaky divide or, or the other one? And I do think there's an awful lot of that in Washington. There's a, there's sort of, there is the established way. These are the acceptable conservative positions you may take. This is the way we oppose the Democrats. And if you try to do it a different way, um, you're on the outs.